When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Impact Theory Podcast, your source of empowering ideas and actionable techniques from the world's highest achievers. Join host Tom Bilyeu, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of the billion-dollar brand Quest Nutrition, on a journey to unlock your potential and realize your vision of success. Welcome to Impact Theory. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of After Impact. I'm your host, Tom Bilyeu, and I am here with none other than Agent Smith. Mr. Bilyeu. What is up? Uh, I'm super excited to talk about this episode this week. The one and only? The one and only Seth Godin. He's in the house, sort of. <laughs> he's, he's here in spirit. It was amazing to have him here. I think that this is my all-time favorite episode of Impact Theory. I can feel that. I'm saying that right now. It was one of my most enjoyable to research for sure. And then he's a really nice guy. I really, yeah. really liked him. He seemed so genuine, so caring. He was he was one of those people that when you complimented him, he didn't just brush it off or anything. He like paused to say, thank you, that means a lot. Mm. And I don't know, there's something about that when people are that way that really shows me that they... They, they have like empathy and they care for other people, right. you know? I love the episode. This is After Impact. This is a show where we unpack the impact of this week's episode with Seth Godin. He is the marketing genius, entrepreneur, uh, personal development guru. He's kind of got it all going. And this episode hit on every one of those levels. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, dude, he's like something special in the world of the internet you know yeah. what i mean like in an age where we all can have unfettered access to anybody willing to put themselves out there he is just incredible he's been at it for so long he puts out so much content and it is so good yeah yeah he's he's amazing and we were talking a few weeks back before his episode i um read his book permission marketing which came out i think in the late 90s and he, I mean, he he created email marketing essentially mm-hmm. of how we At do least, it today. Yeah, the stuff that you like, yes, right. The good email marketing. <laughs> the good email. Um, and he and he was already talking about this idea of content, even though he wasn't using those words mm-hmm. necessarily back then. About adding value, about giving information and educating your consumer. And I mean, he was predicting things in the early '90s that we're doing today, like ad retargeting. What the technology wasn't even there yet. Yeah. I mean, this guy's... It's really impressive when you think... So first of all, it's just a long time ago, period. But when you think about how long ago in internet terms that is, like I think that internet years are like dog years. It's like 7X, <laughs> you know what I mean? True. So it, to think that he was doing that, I mean, it's like 20 years ago. Yeah. It's crazy. It's awesome. So love Seth Godin. Let's dive into the episode. The first part, you guys talk about the... Um, the story of Icarus, and he mm. says this, you know, the story that we tell today is not the one that was uh, originally told. And it used to say, don't fly too close to the sun. But if you fly too low, the the mist and the water over the ocean will surely weigh your wings down and you will die. Right. So do you think we're still in that sort of prevailing narrative if we're using Icarus as like a, a common cultural myth? 
Do you think we're still kind of there collectively? Yes, A. And B, I think that there's something that really resonates with some deep, terrifying part of our limbic system, maybe our lizard brain, even more terrifyingly, that I'm not surprised. So his whole punchline is that the, the myth of Icarus now is told is just don't fly too close to the sun. But back in the day, the, the original myth is actually both don't fly too mm -hmm. close to the sun and don't fly too low. And that, I think, really does speak to that. Be very careful where you fit in. Like, know your place, know your lane, stay in your lane. And it's both interesting that that myth has lasted as long as it has, even given the, like, sort of bracketing effect of the myth. And then it's really weird that we shaved off, like, that bottom part. That That's the, like cynical that's not the right word it's like almost conspiratorial in its removal which he talks to in the whole um way that people creating factories need mm. the factory workers mm -hmm. uh, and all that stuff which is really really interesting but i think that the reason that this still rings so true and the reason that i am still worried about where people are is that it does speak to that lizard brain part of you that wants to not be ostracized that um, doesn't want to ignore the, you know, the snapping twig in the forest so mm -hmm. that you stay alive. So the, the way that it speaks to that deeply ingrained part of our brain that just wants to be safe mm -hmm. scares me. Because in a modern context where you don't have to worry so much about that, the like physical elements of survival, man, it keeps people small. What do they say in Australia? Like the tall poppy gets cut? Yeah, tall poppy syndrome. Yeah. So you stick your head up, it's going to get lopped off. Um, I think that Australians have a word for it, but I think that that's a thing. I think yeah. that that's a global thing. Yeah. And in fact, just today, I was going through my Instagram feed and Mel Robbins had a quote, which is the, um, the like bigger you dare to dream and the more successful you get. She didn't say bigger target you are, but that was like the idea that more people are gunning for you, that you've got a harder fall if you fall. And that freaks people out. And I've never really understood like the whole notion of self-sabotage. And I guess we all suffer from something and that just hasn't been the thing I've struggled with. Um, but I think that it goes back to this notion of the reason it resonates with people when they're told not to fly too high is because people can imagine that. Like, they know how they respond to people that have achieved a lot. They know how some part of them, crabs in a bucket, right, wants to pull those people back down. Yeah. And so they don't necessarily want to become that target. So how do we move beyond this? And what are some of the ways to start getting people to think differently? Well, so the way that you get people to think differently is, is they've got to cultivate a, a want from, take something from a want to a need in their life. Mm. And most people just are never going to do that. And so fine, whatever. But for the people that are listening that really want to be big, they want to play in a world stage, they want to do something incredible with their life. For them, it, it is that. It, all of this ultimately comes back to what energizes you. Mm. And you, you craft that into your life. There's no question. So you can decide that you want to be energized by a given activity that you want to be energized by playing on a world stage, that those things are going to be the thing that you create excitement around in your life. Um, and so that's how you're going to get people to start thinking differently. But the, what was the other part of the question? Just how, what are some of the ways we can get people to start changing that narrative, the Icarus narrative? 
Well, I think that the mechanisms of doing it come down to, okay, you've got this thing, you've created a need in your life. And now how are you going to actually execute against that? It's not being concerned with what other people think about you. And there's a great mm. quote right now, I'm forgetting who said it, but um, basically as long as you worry about what other people, oh, it's uh, Lao Tzu from the Tao Te Ching. As long as you worry about what other people think of you, you'll always be their prisoner. And so breaking free of that comes from, okay, I have a code internally, I know what I'm trying to do, I believe in myself. Um, and so I'm not gonna worry about the slings and arrows of other people. And as I say this, I realize that there's a, a lie of omission in there. And the image that came screaming into my mind is that of my wife. And the reason that she came into my mind is I realized she's a coat of armor that I wear. And what I mean is that the people that take the biggest risks in their life always have the most secure home life. And I have mm. said to myself a thousand times when, when we were broke and we were taking big risks, it was always, I know my worst case scenario is it's you and me in a hovel somewhere, right? We may like yeah. be dead broke, but it's you and me. And I so enjoy my time with you. And the way that she looks at me as somebody that she believes in and she's excited by, like that's my worst case scenario, which is why I say that's my highest priority. I don't wanna fuck that up. So really investing in that and making sure that that relationship is solid and beautiful and ultimately that safe and secure place for me to return to allows me to take big risks. So if people want to really go out and do something, they need to cultivate that, that strong, safe group of friends. It doesn't have to be romantic, mm, okay. but it needs to be something where you're like, okay, this is my worst case scenario. And my worst case scenario is I have these really close friends that care deeply about me. They know who I am. I'm not pretending. I'm not like it's not um, I haven't put myself on some faux pedestal that mm. like, oh, God, if they find out who I really am, then it's all going to come crumbling down. That's really, really important. And I've never I mean, I've thought about these concepts, but I've never like wrapped them into one thing before. And that really is the truth. That's what you have to do. You need that strong home life. You can't give a shit about what other people think, which you're only going to be able to do if you've got those core people that really believe in you and know who you are. And then um, you need actually tactically to be able to pull it off. But that's like a whole nother thing. That was awesome. So I want to touch on one thing you said in there, and that is um, taking a desire into a need. And one of the things that Seth talks about in the episode, and I love this part, is um, people who come to him and say, um, I, you know, I, I have writer's block or I'm not producing any good writing. And he's like, show me your bad writing. And he said, that the truth is they never have it. And that is such a common thing is, especially in the creative pursuits, you go out and create something and it's not good. And you're like, well, I guess I'm not good. And you stop. So what would you tell someone in that situation? Is that a, is that a problem of, not wanting something bad enough, not making it a need, or what is it? What's the issue there? So first of all, Jared, I just have to say thank you for bringing this up. This is so powerful. And in the episode, I like, I could hear myself getting like amped up because I was like, I didn't want, and I think I even say this in the episode, I didn't want to breathe while he was yeah, saying that yeah. because I was like, oh God, this is so powerful. And I really, really, really want people to hear this. So um, my early writing is so bad as it's just like embarrassing beyond all measure right but i did it and i went through it yeah. and it's like you just have to keep going and keep typing and 
it's like letter after letter, the waves of embarrassment that would wash on me. I knew it was bad in real time. Right, right. That's right. the like scary I've part. I've definitely done that. And writing. it's like, oh God, I'm yeah. feeling worse about myself with like every <laughs> word I type. But you just have to like push through it. So yes, some of it is like the thing that you want on the other side of that. And I put that in air quotes because you need to turn it into a need. But mm. like to get that it's a desire. It's something that you, you long for. So that thing that you want on the other side that you're going to need to turn into a crushing need. If it's not strong enough, that, that wave of feeling badly about yourself, which is coming from somewhere deep inside of you, is so strong and so shameful and so like untied to anything. It's, it's like biological. So you've got this biological thing in you telling you that you're bad and that you're talentless. And it's like, yeah. how the fuck do I get on the other side of this? And it is... It's two things. And I'm telling you right now, the only belief that matters is that you can get better. Like, that's it. Like, until you embrace that. And that's why this is like the core of my message. Like, all of the ranting and raving and interviews and content and books and videos, everything boils down to one thing. Believe to the core of your being that you can get better. Once you believe that, then it's like, okay, this thing that I want on the other side of this I can get good enough to get it, but I've got to be willing to deal with the embarrassment. That's awesome. All right, I'm going to take a hard left turn here and go back to something earlier in the episode when Seth was talking about the future of work and the fact that with technology and machine learning and AI, we're getting to a place where a lot of these jobs can be done by computers and that the way to kind of secure your job is to do be so good at something that someone can't tell you how to do your job, right? Just your thoughts on that. And then also, what do you think the future of work like, looks like? Because it is going to change dramatically in the next couple of decades. You may have to remind me of the second part because I really want to go hard on linchpin, which is that notion of yeah. doing something that somebody can't tell you how to do. And so he refers to it as being an artist. And mm. in linchpin, that's the word he uses. Like He doesn't say you're trying to be a linchpin. He says you're trying to be an artist. And understanding that that woman in 7-Eleven who sells more coffee than anyone else in all of the 7-Elevens around the country is an artist. Like once you get that, then hopefully you will embody that in your own life. And this is it. There's a reason that book is on my list of must reads. And I don't think the vast majority of the world is well suited to being an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Um, if you don't want to fill every nook and cranny of your free time with thinking about solving the problems of your business, like you, you just don't be an entrepreneur. Now, hear that in the context of like the 90s when that word is sort of first being used. And it just means like you start your own business. It's not like the rock star thing that it's become today. Not being an entrepreneur does not make you a bad or less person. Okay, so just mathematically, I think that the vast majority of people be far happier as an artist, as a linchpin, as somebody who does something so artfully that you, you can't tell somebody else to do it, you can't outsource it, getting an AI to do it, maybe one day, but like, dude, that shit is so far off into the future, but it requires you to really pour yourself into getting good at something, which starts with caring about something, and that is where people fucking fall down. People do not care about shit. They don't invest mm. in deciding I'm going to care about this thing. And once I'm going to eat this fucking microphone. Once people understand that it is a decision to care about something like that. It is a decision to invest 
in feeling something about it, feeling some kind of way. So right now, for instance, because comics are such an important part of the R&D process for making a TV show and film, I am throwing myself into caring about comics, feeling some kind of way about comics. And now every week, I go to my local comic store and I'm talking to the guy and I'm pouring over the issues and I'm looking at what's coming out and I'm reading them and I'm marking them up and I'm watching videos on the mythology surrounding the, um, the Avengers Infinity series and like really like allowing myself to invest in the entire surrounding ecosystem. Now, that actually isn't something that I'm naturally drawn to. Like even at the height of my being way into comics. I didn't like get into all the nooks and crannies. I did not talk to the guy behind the counter. I wasn't pouring over every issue. I wasn't trying to like drink in the mythology all around it. I liked the story for what the story had to offer. I liked the art for what the art had to offer. That was it. I would read it and I would put it down in a box. That was it. So deciding I'm gonna go all in on this so that I can feel some kind of way this morning for the first time. So I've been going hard at this for a while now. This morning for the first time, I had this twinge of excitement when I came across some like obscure piece of mythology and I thought that's how it fucking starts. And that is the thing that separates people that really go on to do extraordinary things from people that don't. I fucking created that. That bit of mythology is a result of me now going, when do we really start courting Jim? Eight weeks, 12 weeks, whatever. So for the last 12 weeks, I've just been pouring myself into this, going hard, going deep, watching videos, thinking about it, talking about it, sitting there with Jim, talking about fucking comics like this shit is high art, like it is literature, and allowing myself to like really go in on that. People don't do that, dude. They don't want something like that, and they don't understand, or they refuse to accept, or I don't know, but they don't realize that they can create that. I knew 12 weeks ago when I started this that that feeling that I had deep in my limbic system this morning, a real emotion, that that was the end result. I knew that. I knew that that was the fucking process. So people need to be able to do that in their life. Okay. So that's that part. People need to really start caring about something. And Seth actually says that in the episode that people come to him and say, well, I can't find something I love. And he says, what you should really be thinking about is I choose to love the thing that I do. Dude, so good. do you know how much I wanted to jump out of my skin? I, th I can't remember if they cut to me or not, but I was nodding so hard I thought my head was going to fall <laughs> off. <laughs> it, it's so important. It's so important. And I have this like blaring siren in my mind lately that's like simplify, simplify, simplify. Like to really pull people out of the matrix, they need to understand this is all process oriented. It is all deadly simple and that at the end of the day what it comes back to it all boils down to what do you repeat in your head that's it repetition pure and simple what do you repeat is it something empowering is it disempowering that that binary bifurcation will determine the quality of your life now the second part of your question and i think only half answered the first part but it was it was good though. we went so hard yeah uh i'll now move we'll, on to we'll move part. on what's so, the future of um of work what do you work? think the future of work looks like i think that 
I don't have an ability to predict meaningfully too far out. So I'll give you near term. So in the next five to seven years, at a minimum of 20 million jobs are going to evaporate overnight because professional drivers won't be a thing anymore. And so I think right now, still, the, the number one occupation held by the most people is driving. Really? Uh, wow. Yes. And so that, that beast has already been shot. It is dying. So now if people aren't thinking, how do I migrate out of this, then that's really going to cause a dramatic amount of emotional turmoil. And so the first comic that we're writing, oddly enough, and I guess because somewhere in the back of my mind, this has been percolating, deals with exactly that. Like, how do we as a society respond when we realize AI is for real taking jobs? It's not like some far off thing. It's like happening right now. It wipes out a ton of blue collar jobs who are the people that have leaned least heavily on formal education. So now they're going to have to get formally educated. So the people that least were least likely to do that now are the ones that are most going to need to do that, which means it's going to be super fucking awkward in terms of a transition. So I think it's going to be a very difficult transition time where people are going to act the fool. It's going to be really awkward. And I think that there will be some unpleasantness that comes out of it. But right on the heels of that, I think people will begin to realize there's all new jobs that are being created around that ecosystem of AI, around the ecosystem of robotics. And for those that are willing to go into those fields, I think it's going to be incredible. And so as you look at the generation coming up now that will just be trained in the ways of those technologies, they will assume that those will be the jobs that they're going to get, that it will be phenomenal. But I think it's unavoidable that you have this, the transitional generation that that's not going to be pleasant. Now, that was more societal than actual work. So where I think work is going is very much towards people having to be a linchpin to find fulfillment, that now work is going to allow that more and more because there's more fragmentation. I think big companies, you're going to get, just like we're seeing with wealth distribution, you're going to get massive, massive, massive companies and then a bazillion small companies with like three to 10 employees. Mm -hmm. And so I think that actually creates an amazing opportunity for fulfillment because you don't have to be a cog in the wheel. That system's done. I think the education system's going to begin to change. I think people are going to realize they have to become an artisan no matter what they're doing. And I think they're going to work in a small enough company where their, um, their efforts will really be rewarded. And finally, for the first time in a long time, a majority of people have purpose and meaning. And I think that's going to be huge. That's great. Seth says that his model, his, his model for his life has been to be a teacher. Uh, do you think of yourself as a teacher? No. Interesting. Just to balance out my really long answers with a nice short one. <laughs> Can you um, elaborate? Yeah. So I have taught and I know what good teaching looks like. And good teaching looks like I am thinking entirely about like this relationship that I have with my students and I'm going to learn what I need to learn to bring back to the classroom in order to um, make sure that I'm nourishing them. Now, that sounds so close to what I'm doing that I get somebody listening would be like, what? <laughs> the one caveat is I am fully driven by my own self-actualization. And if at any time I had to choose between empowering myself or empowering others, I will empower myself. 
And I am on this journey and it's the journey that I hope everyone else is on to see how much of my potential I can actuate. So Seth very clearly sums up the um, ethos of a teacher. He will judge himself based on what the people he teaches teach. I will judge myself based entirely on one criteria. How many people am I able to free from the matrix? Period. Because that's the skill set I want to develop in my life. Now, it is very outwardly focused. It is very much a thing of service. And I want to help people. But I want people to understand that I'm doing it because I love it. I'm doing it because I'm on fire for it. I'm doing it because it gives me energy. Like all the things that I tell people to do. And so I think that that's a very innate part of the human animal is you both want to do something that makes you feel rad and you want to serve other people. So that, that's where I'm at. Um, I have no interest in being in a classroom. I want to be on my journey and then bring it back and say, okay, this is what I'm learning. I hope that it's useful to you. But quite honestly, if you don't avail yourself of that, if you don't use it, I don't give a shit. So I'm like, I'm trying to build something at scale that's designed to help people that are actively antagonistic to what I think is the positive outcome, which is to have an empowering belief system. So I'm going to like the social content is me looking like a teacher. But when I start doing the full blown Disney making movies, TV shows, comic books, it's going to look way less like teaching. Yeah. Um, Seth says that, and I believe this came from Cat Hoke. You can't be curious and angry at the same time. Mm. Um, and he talks about how it's a really interesting way that he defined curiosity, and that is to look at someone in a situation, and maybe you're at the grocery store, or maybe you're sitting in traffic, and instead of being angry about something that they're doing or the situation, you're being curious about where they're coming from. I really liked that. It also reminded me a lot of David Foster Wallace's talk, This Is Water, and sort of the automatic thinking and getting through that. So I wanted to ask you about like curiosity and this type of, uh, this type of thought process. How does that play into having an empowering mindset? That, it's logotherapy, right? So it's Viktor Frankl. In between stimulus and response is a gap, and mm. in that gap you get to make a choice. So like you encounter somebody in a grocery store and they're acting crazy and you get to decide, am I curious or am I pissed off? And when you are able to effectively fill that gap with something useful, that is a necessary mechanism to having a growth mindset. Now, the thing that you insert specifically in a growth mindset is I can learn this. I can get better. Um, I can um, choose what emotion I experience. I can choose what emotion I embody. Mm -hmm. And there's so many physical hooks into your emotions that that that's a real statement. I'm not saying that emotions aren't real. I'm not saying that they don't have, um, you know, that there isn't some physical impetus where it's like something happened in the world and I feel some kind of way about it. But I am saying that you can flip that. You can use that as a reminder. You can use that. And I, th I think he talks about that in the episode um, where you're essentially using some, oh, he did. He was talking about cognitive behavioral That's therapy. Right. Yep. And he said, you know, the, the whole thing about CBT is that you're choosing to use that negative thought that, um, you know, in the case of OCD, that repetitive thought as a habit loop trigger to something positive. And so that that's like a mainstay of the growth mindset is understanding mechanistically how do you 
instead of trying to silence the inner critic, how do you leverage it? Yeah. Awesome. Uh, let's talk about dancing with fear. Uh, this involves welcoming fear into your life in the moments of anxiety or performance and training yourself to live with it. So it seems like fear has been a great motivator for you at times. Um, and how else does it play into your mindset? I don't really spend a lot of time thinking about fear. So I like his concept of dancing with it when he gives like the explanation of what he means. And he said what he's talking about is, can you fall in love with that feeling of this might not work? Mm -hmm. And that I love. And I'll tell you why I love that. And the reason that I love that is that's how you do something extraordinary in your life. Because if you are following a well-laid path, you won't have that sense of, oh, this might not work, but you will also never venture off the path. And so you're only going to get the some lesser version or maybe equal of what's come before you, but you'll never transcend it because to transcend it, you have to go where there is no path. And the thing that I have cultivated in my mind to enjoy is very specifically to go where nobody else has gone, to do more than somebody else has done, um, to do it differently. So all of those things, that notion of falling in love with that, that's where I want to live. So some of it, like I do experience this fear from time to time, but I try to use the, oh, I'm afraid of this as a habit loop trigger of, okay, cool. That means that there's stakes. Okay. That means that I'm going somewhere new, fresh. That's fantastic. That's exactly where I want to be. And then in that process, I just remind myself, like, I, I have this thing where what's your worst case scenario and is it acceptable? And so my worst case scenario is uh, I bet my fortune on the studio and I go too far. I don't know when enough is enough. I let all of my money get tied up in it and it fails and I'm broke again. Oh, okay. Well, cool. That I can live with that. So the thing that I fear far more than that is Lisa looking at me like, what have you done to my life? <laughs> that would scare me. But she obviously is fully invested in this. She understands the potential consequences and she's totally in. But being broke, when I really imagine through that, the only part of that that's troublesome for me is disappointing my wife. Mm. So like imagining that knowing, oh, okay, that's my worst case scenario. Cool. That's not scary enough for me to compete with how exciting it is for me when I imagine what if I actually pull this shit off? And it's also not going to be binary, right? So like how far do I get? Do I crush in comics? Do we crush in comics and TV? Do we crush as a studio for 10 years? Like some you know, like something that we do is going to work. The social yeah. content's already crushing. So it's like, oh shit. Well, okay, we're winning at social. Can we win at the comics? Can, you know, yeah, and yeah. it's just like, I just want to see like how far can we take this? And yeah. that's so exciting to me. And I so believe to the core of my being that I can get good at something, even if I'm currently bad at it, that even the failures are just lessons. That's awesome. Uh, Seth breaks down the difference between mentors, mentors and heroes. Can you remind us of what that difference is and then, uh, how you think about mentors and heroes. And then what are some of your heroes? So I will one agree with him that, um, heroes are way more powerful than yeah. mentors. So a mentor is somebody that you have an actual physical face to face relationship. Um, you're talking one-on-one. -on -one. It is very much a, an intimate relationship. And like sure. he says, it does not scale. Um, and it doesn't scale for either party. So that makes a lot of sense in terms of it being limited in its utility. Now, don't get me wrong, mentors are way powerful. And if you can get somebody to do that, it's awesome. But it's 
limited in its accessibility, right? So you're not going to be able to get a hold of your mentor whenever you want. So, but a hero is like a thought exercise. You can watch them. You can model yourself after them. So it may be the kind of person that you wanted as a mentor. You want to have a one-on-one relationship with them. So in that sense, it's no different, but because you don't, you're still going to learn from them. So Mm -hmm. when people ask who have my mentors been in my life, I always say authors because that's the true answer. Like I've learned a lot from people I've known in my life, absolutely no question. But the people that have been most profoundly educational for me have been authors, without question. And you think of them as mentors or heroes? I always have. I like his um, lexicon of differentiating between a mentor and a hero. And in that case, in that case, I've never really had a mentor. I've never had a formal mentor. Mm. I've never had somebody who would have said, oh, I'm the mentor, they're my mentee. Um, the closest I got to that were the guys that were my business partners at Quest, but it didn't feel like that at the time. It, there was no like, let me young Padawan, let me teach you. It was, let me kick you in the teeth from a business (laughs) perspective. And just like, you're either going to sink or swim. Right. And there was a bunch of us working in the company and it was just like, do a good job, motherfuckers. Like that was basically the punchline. And so if you watched and paid attention, you could learn a lot, but it wasn't like, well, let me teach you and let me show you where you went wrong. It just wasn't like that. Um, so that's why I just when asked that question. I always like the, the people that wrote books, like they're literally going, do this, then this, then this. Here's the obstacle that you're going to encounter. Here's how you deal with that. Like it's so nurturing and just incredibly useful, which is why I'm, I'm a fiend for how much people should be reading. And now, like, now I, I used to say ABR, always be reading. Now I think the only reasonable thing is to change it to ABL, always be learning, because there's so much video content, podcast content, um, and it's it's all incredibly powerful. So anyway, that's how I think about it. Um, who are my heroes? The person that inspires me the most right now is the person I think everybody should be inspired by the most, and that is Elon Musk. Like, it's, mm. it's come on, people. Like, are you watching what this guy's doing? He said it's 2019. Insanity. Flights to Mars. They'll, they'll be they'll be sending rockets to Mars in 2019. That's crazy. crazy, dude. He he plans to terraform a fucking planet. Yeah. Like, think about that for a second, and what you have to do to get all the way there. It's just it's dope, and I just because big dreams are so exciting for me. Um, yeah, that's amazing. But there's there's a whole host of people. Anyone anyone else? Um, Seth is somebody that I've looked up to for a very long time. The way that he thinks, I think, is incredible. Sam Harris. Um, the way, what made me think of that is the very phrase, the way that he thinks makes me think of fucking Sam Harris. The way that that guy's mind works is pure insanity. Um, Disney, obviously like amazing Kevin Feige, anybody that's following what's going on in the MCU. It's like uh, the Marvel cinematic universe. It it's unbelievable. And I don't know even how much of it he's doing behind the scenes, how much is he knows to listen to other people. I don't know how much I'm painting him with that brush or if he's just really that good in and of himself. I have no idea. Um, but those give you a few, as Steve Jobs, I mean, the, you know, the hit list. Bill yeah, Gates. yeah. Um, Seth breaks down how he created these books for... Um, you know, great grade school age boys that were based on Nintendo video games. Uh, you've talked a lot, and he says that, you know, it wasn't so much that I had this original concept, is that I was able to take these different threads from different industries and put them all together in an original way. 
and you have talked a lot about in the past, um, it's less important to have an original idea and it's more important to take different ideas and put them together in an original way. So I want to hear your thoughts on that story from Seth. I almost wet myself when he told that story. Do you know how brilliant that really is? And that's what I really, really hope people take away from that is it was deadly simple. And in like, in fact, let's back up. He says exactly what he did Mm -hmm. and he blows by it so fast as if it were self-evident, but the process is. And so if people can take that in their life and apply it to anything. So let's walk through what he did. He looks at video games and he, he's a book uh, packager at this time. So his job is just to get a bunch of books out right, of the world, right. right? Not necessarily writing them all, but he's you know going and putting these together for publishers so that they've always got stuff to be putting out of the world. And he looks at video games and goes, there's something happening. It's a cultural phenomenon. Well, even before that, he looks and says there's the Babysitter's Club, which is this serial set of books for um, girls, young girls, but there's nothing really for young boys and young boys aren't reading. Even better. So starts there, right? And has his relationship with Scholastic, which is a publisher, a very atypical publisher, and then asks that question. Okay, what's the thing for boys? Realizes there's this cultural phenomenon going on in video games. So already just like process-based thinking, right? Mm -hmm. So, okay, I see what's working in Scholastic for girls. I see the video games. I see an opportunity for Scholastic with boys. And most people get that far and stop. What was the brilliant thing he did, Agent Smith? Well, he he identified that video games, the popularity of video games. Yes. And then he saw that, um, I'm trying to remember the story just right. He, he identified that people make a living out of taking movies and turning them into um, yes. ch- like chapter books, we'll call them. You're, you're dancing around the part that was actually brilliant. And, and this, there's something I can't say yet, but this is something you need to put into your heart because this is going to take you to the next level, okay? The brilliant thing he did he recorded kids playing video games. Everyone else stops because they're like, uh, I don't know the fucking characters. There's no screenplay. Um, so all the things that make this possible in the land of movies, mm-hmm. like, well, there's just nothing we can do. And like his mind so doesn't work like that. He was like, oh, I'll just have a kid play a video game. I'll put a fucking uh, camcorder on it, record it, and now I'll just play it back and watch it. Everyone, I'm telling you, he's not the first person to have that idea. Everyone stopped it, but I, there's no script. And so right. the, the deadly simple act of going, no bullshit, what would it take? No bullshit, what would it take to like figure this out? Any screenplay, there's no screenplay. Oh, okay, I guess I could film somebody playing. Okay, yep, that'd be perfect. Then I'll watch it back and I'll know what the characters look like. I could pause it, play. That one deceptively simple little thing. Anytime you hear yourself say, oh, but I can't because of this, that, or the other. That's the moment where you get surpassed by other people. It just like in life. And so whenever I find myself like, dude, this is why. So I've talked about this before. Launching the comic book company, I hire a guy who used to be the head of one of the behemoths. And I say for two days, 
I want you to essentially fucking heckle me and tell me why I'm going to fail. And the reason I wanted to do that was I wanted, I know on the other side of that, I'm just going to look for answers. So I want to know all all the places where everybody else is going to say, oh, it can't be done. So just outline all those problems for me. There's no script. So that I can come up with the, we'll put a camcorder on it. Because I know that's the way the human mind works. I had to train myself to do this. I do not do it naturally. And once you train yourself to go, oh, that's where everybody else stops, there is an answer. And I'm going to force myself Mm. to think crazy. I'm going to force myself to say, well, yeah, you can't live on Mars now. But if you could release enough greenhouse gases, you could. Fucking... Elon Musk is saying, oh, just drop some uh, thermonuclear weapons over the ice caps on Mars. No big deal. Liquid water, bro. Like, who, who else <laughs> thinks like that, right? Like, we all know that thermonuclear weapons exist. We all know how much they raise the temperature. But we don't go, oh, learn rocket science, build a rocket ship, make it reusable, send it into fucking outer space, blow up the ice caps so that there's liquid water, begin the terraforming process. It's not that we can't figure the shit out. We just, we hit a roadblock and we stop. Our minds are designed to go, oh, well, I guess it's not possible. Sure. I could go on was really and good. on was and really on. The, I was flipping out when he said that. And I, I allowed myself to say brilliant. You know, I don't invest in intelligence yep, yep, very much. Yep. But like that move procedurally is so clever. Everybody at home right now burn that story into your psyche because the only thing stopping you from having some tremendous breakthrough in life is that putting a camcorder on the TV. It's something that stupid and simple. Yeah. And I like when you said it's process decision-making and process thinking. So it's not like this stroke of genius. It's a, I'm just going to sit down and stare at the problem and walk through it and walk through it and walk through it and think of other alternatives. Love that. And, And dude, all you have to do, get a friend. Like yeah. your, your thinking will stop. Get a friend and go, all right, in the next three hours, we're going to solve XYZ problem. And then just let your mind go crazy. It's why I created the game, No Bullshit, What Would It Take? Because it's meant to get you thinking absurd, things you may never do, things that are immoral, whatever. Right. But now your mind is expanded. You're not stopping at obstacles anymore. You're going all the way to, well, it would work. I'm not going to do it, but it would work. And then you can start working your way backwards from success rather than starting at failure. Mm, That's very good. Um, Last question. So Seth talks about the Alt-MBA, and this is another one that he kind of broke down his process for creating the Alt-MBA. And my favorite part of it was he was saying that, you know, there's all the success with online education uh, companies like Udemy and all the other online courses, but um, the dropout rate is really, really high for online education. And he said the profits are great, but the dropout rate is high. And so he said to himself, what would I have to do to create a school that had a dropout rate of like 2%? And just the fact that he started with that as his North Star metric and not money or enrollment or any other thing, I think is so, so... Uh, just wise in the way that he was approaching the problem. And then he was able to build his school based off of that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not a question for a reason, right? That's just a fact. It's so yeah. smart and beautiful and wonderful. 
Um, and I, I think that Seth is a beacon of hope for how people should think that while money is so powerful and it's wonderful and it's tempting and I get how people end up chasing it as I did, but the name of the game is brain chemistry. It's fulfillment. It's feeling positive about yourself. It's enjoying what you do for a living. Like, think about enjoyment. It's the act of this thing is neurochemically pleasurable. That's it. Not more complicated than that. But people make it complicated because they want other people to think a certain thing about them. And once you can get into Seth Godin's groove of, that's not going to be my North Star metric. I'm going to enjoy what I do. I'm going to believe in what I do. I'm going to have real ideas and opinions about things regardless of whether they make me popular. And in that freedom, you've got the opportunity to create something different. Yeah. And that's certainly what I believe that we're doing here. Like every time I come back to why I believe this is going to work is because I'm prepared to be disciplined to only tell one kind of story that's empowering and exciting and it's that limitation that makes me think that we'll be successful because now i'm not playing the same game that everybody else is playing i'm playing something to the side of it and i just need to collect the people that get the game that i'm playing and now we've got something new yeah so it's the the brilliant thing that seth has done is to limit himself by what makes him proud of himself basically it's like I want to be a teacher. I'm going to judge myself by what the people I teach teach. Like, who are we able to move? Who are those people able to touch? And if that's the metric I'm going to hold myself accountable to and not money and all of that, then suddenly you've got clarity of how you spend your time. You've got that filtering mechanism that you need to know what to say yes to and what to say no to. You just approach the world in a totally different way that sets you up for success. Versus people that don't know what to say yes to. They don't know what to say no to. It's a money grab for them. There's a frantic nature. They move from one thing to the next because it's always like, what is the most likely to let me have the kind of financial success that I want, which means oftentimes changing and thusly never gaining the kind of real expertise and deep abilities in something to truly consider themselves an artist. Yeah. All right, what's next for Seth? Now that that's, I think almost impossible to answer because that guy has reinvented himself so many times that That's a good point like i'm so shocked he's not an author anymore like he said i don't know that i'll ever write another book and this is somebody that's written a just obscene amount of books like so many of them new york times bestsellers yeah and it's just crazy but it wasn't like Oh, he saw industries changing in a way that doesn't make it as interesting or appealing to me anymore. Um, the audience that I've built over the years are, are essentially telling me that that's not what they want from me anymore. And so very gracefully, he's just moved to something else. And so I think that he's going to continue to reinvent himself like that. And I think that anybody that wants to gain something out of Seth need only watch how he thinks instead of like any one moment in time, what he's saying. Mm. And so I think that that he will remain a paragon of how to think. Awesome. Well, that's it for After Impact today. Awesome, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. This episode was very special. I hope that it hit you as hard as it hit us. 
Seth is an amazing human being. Definitely dive in his world. You won't regret it. All right, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Hey everybody, thank you so much for listening. And if this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, rate and review us. That helps us build this community. And that is what we are all about right now, building this community as big as we can to help as many people as we can deliver as much value as possible. And you guys rating and reviewing really helps with that. All right, guys, thank you again so much. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.